KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. The Human Rights Watch Film Festival kicks off its sixth year at the Museum of Photographic Arts, and my guest is a producer from one of the documentaries screening on Saturday. This year's festival arrives on the heels of the announcement of yet another very white set of Oscar nominations. The lack of diversity feels especially insulting after the issue has been raised and supposedly addressed over the past two years. My guest today is someone who has had to fight the dual obstacles of being both female and African-American. I speak with Lawrence Grant about making the documentary The Black Panthers, Vanguard of the Revolution, and about the lack of diversity in Hollywood and among the Oscar nominees. The lack of African-American nominees has prompted people like Spike Lee to call for a boycott. But that seems like the wrong call to action. African-Americans and minorities already seem invisible in Hollywood. So how will boycotting the awards help their case? People will then see an all-white Academy Awards ceremony, and minority invisibility will be oddly affirmed. If we look to the civil rights movement, boycotts worked best when they made both a financial and a media impact. The Montgomery bus boycotts, for example, had a financial impact on the buses and also got media attention. African Americans boycotting the Oscars may get press, but there will be no impact on the Oscars themselves apart from the possible embarrassment. Turning again to the civil rights movement, blacks did not boycott the places that were trying to keep them out, but rather insisted on being allowed in. So wouldn't it be impressive to have an audience at the Oscars that was mostly black? to have crowds lining the red carpet that were all black and only cheered when African-American filmmakers and performers went by. Chris Rock is scheduled to host the Oscars, and that might be the perfect opportunity for a show of solidarity by coming out in large numbers to prove that Hollywood can no longer ignore African-Americans in the industry. The Black Panthers documentary serves up powerful images of black power. There were scenes of African-Americans carrying guns into the state capitol and prompting Ronald Reagan to call for gun control. These images of the Black Panthers suggest that it's not a boycott that's needed, but rather a call for revolution by providing an impressive show of strength, numbers, and solidarity. Lawrence Grant will be in San Diego at the Museum of Contemporary Art on Saturday to present the Black Panthers and to answer questions after the screening. Here's a little bit of the film's trailer to set the tone for the movie. The thing that led to the Panthers was what we were seeing on television every day. Attack dogs, fire hoses, bombings. We stand on the eve of a black revolution, brothers. I was a cocktail waitress in a white strip club two years before I joined the Black Panther Party. How did that happen? The rage was in the streets. It was everywhere. I started discussion by asking what circumstances led to the documentary being made now. I think the longer piece is it just slogging through trying to raise the funds. Like, it took nearly a decade. So all the track record of trying to make funds, and then the working with the director, Stanley Nelson, we both did a film, Freedom Riders. And I think the success of that film probably put it, the rest of the funding piece in place. 
And that really, you know, that did well for PBS. And, you know, they've been trying to raise money into this Panther film for so long. Uh, I think that sort of converged. And then Oprah picked up the film. And then Lee Daniels, the butler, licensed clips from Freedom Riders. And Selma took a lot of characters and based them on characters from Freedom Riders. So I just think maybe that whole confluence really kind of put the final piece together for the Black Panthers to finally happen. So the idea or that your interest in making a documentary on the Black Panthers actually dates back quite a ways longer. Yes, I do think it's quite honestly one of the last important and sexy stories of the 1960s. Because myself and my career, I've worked on uh, a few of the pinnacle movements, the Freedom Rides, certainly um, even the murder of Emmett Till, working on that film, and even exploring the important contribution Latin Americans have made to the musical and cultural landscape of the United States in a series called Latin Music USA. So I kind of felt like the Black Panthers really was one of the last great stories of the 20th century or mid-20th century that hadn't been told. A lot of people been attempting, or there had been pieces and portions of that era and the party told, but not one feature-length look at the impact of the Black Panther Party. And why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that other filmmakers, either within the documentary format or within a more fictional format, haven't tackled this more often? I think now that we've had our film completed, many people have said, oh, I tried, you know, years ago or decades ago to try and make a film. I just think, you know, quite honestly, it was a little too controversial and too fun. You know, funders were nervous to go to bat for this film, say, 10, 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago. So I think in an odd way, it just ended up being the perfect time to have this film come out, so much so that now people are thinking, oh, gosh, you could have made this ages ago. Well, in fact, the climate really wasn't ready. And I think now that it's out, you know, we're just seeing a lot of things that are changing and fermenting and churning in society that it just makes the film, even though it's 50 years on, looking at the party, makes it right on time. Well, it's interesting. You start with some newsreel footage, or Stanley Nelson starts with some newsreel footage in the film. Relations between police and Negroes throughout the country are getting worse. One of the cities most troubled by animosity between police and Negroes is Oakland, California. Which resonates really strongly today for what's going on right now. So in some ways, it seems very topical. Exactly. We could have never planned that. (laughs) Certainly working on the film, we were just excited to have the opportunity to do it and thinking it'll be a great, interesting film that hopefully people will resonate with it and maybe take some lessons learned. But we could have never imagined that, especially in the final years, finishing and wrapping up the film, you know, here we are editing scenes about the problems of black community and police officers or police brutality and tensions and really literally coming out of the edit room and seeing similar news stories on my Twitter feed and on the internet and on the television news. So we really could not have imagined that that would still be playing out nearly 50 years later. Now, the film doesn't make any connections between the past and current events. Were you at all tempted at some point to do that, or did you feel you really wanted to focus on this particular period in time? Yes, the focus on the film has been and and is a look at a historical bubble and its resonances. It really is a look at the history and impact of the Black Panther Party, the rise and fall of the Black Panther Party, what was going on 
in American society and even around the world at that time that led to these events that, you know, made it the perfect climate for an organization like the Black Panther Party to be formed. And also look at the coalitions that were formed. Like, a lot of people were um, uneasy about things happening on all fronts back then. You know, there was the draft, there was the Vietnam War, Europe was burning, many African countries were becoming independent at the same time. There was just so much tension going on. You know, the women's movement was really, you know, gaining traction. So it was like kind of the perfect storm of events and a perfect storm of events to do a film to explore all of that. And I think we probably would have done short shift if we tried to include everything in that film, taking it from there to the present. And that really wasn't the task. I think it was sufficient material to address what was going on at that period and quite fascinating. Yeah, there are a lot of really wonderful moments in terms of some of the interviews and the newsreel footage you gain. There's a nice section where specifically it looks at women within the Black Panther movement and this dual sense of not only trying to, you know, get equal rights for black Americans, but also for women within the movement. Dear Huey, when I joined the party, I was thrilled about becoming part of an organization that believes in the equality of men and women. It bothers me that there are brothers who still view women as sexual objects. We should have no men in the Black Panther Party who feel this way, or women for that matter. One of the ironies of the Black Panther Party is that the image is the black male with the jacket and the gun, but the reality is the majority of the rank and file at, at, by the end of the 60s are women. The Black Panther Party certainly had a chauvinist tone, and so we tried to change some of the clear gender roles so that women had guns and men cooked breakfast for children. Did we overcome it? Of course we didn't. As I like to say, we didn't get these brothers from revolutionary heaven. That was really an interesting treat for me to see that unfold, to learn that that was happening. It was a reflection or a mirror of the times. You know, that was the women's movement was gaining stream. You know, some of those, you know, the pinnacle characters that we take for granted today and think they're historical icons. I mean, they were fighting the fight back then. And I think that's one important and interesting takeaway for people who weren't born then, that many of the things that you should be grateful for are from that era. There were a lot of people who were out in the streets doing the hard work, the legwork, and women included. And so we definitely wanted that to be in, involved in the film, but also to feel organic, you know, not to feel like, oh, okay, let's cut away and now just do the little women piece. No, they were quite instrumental, substantial, and a fact that I didn't know, they were pretty much the majority of the party uh, once the early 70s came around. And also there's some nice ironic moments, too. And there's a newsreel where the news media gets distracted from Ronald Reagan being there when the Black Panthers arrive, and, and Ronald Reagan finds himself in the position of promoting gun control. I don't think that loaded guns is the way to solve a problem that should be solved between people of goodwill. And anyone who would approve of this kind of demonstration must be out of their mind. We definitely are filmmakers and do want uh, to include things like irony, satire, and humor. We don't want everything to be just heavy and preachy and hitting you over the head. And it certainly was not lost on us to see those sound bites from Reagan and even Hoover. I mean, it was just astonishing. Do you feel the nation is in trouble? I think very definitely it is. 
What is the answer? The answer is vigorous law enforcement. How about justice? Justice is merely incidental to law and order. And to have the, the footage to actually prove it. And what was more, what we really wanted to do was immerse people in that time frame, like to hopefully make you feel like you are back there in that time that, you know, Reagan is actually, you know, sort of the governor and Hoover's around and the Panthers are just down the street. Like we really wanted you to, as an audience to feel immersed in that time to hopefully get you to think, what was it like to be around? Because sometimes it's really hard to connect the dots on, well, why would that happen? What was going on? I say that Ronald Reagan is a punk, a sissy, and a coward, and I challenge you to a duel. And if you feel immersed, you know, I look at it filmmaking as sort of an immersive experience, hopefully that, that resonates better and, and makes it also a visceral experience as well as an enjoyable experience. Well, what's impressive, too, is a lot of these images you have, especially a lot of the, the still images that the news media were using, are still really powerful images today that still stand out. It was really extraordinary on the sense of what a privilege to work with that material, to find a lot of the photographers. You know, some of them had never even seen their material printed or published or certainly in a documentary. Others were professional photographers, and it was just nice for them to see some of these images that they took nearly 50 years ago be included in a documentary. And we sort of, if you will, decorate our own production office sort of to remind us of who people were and just to reflect on what was going on then so we would have our own rotating museum gallery of just putting up images around the wall and on the doors. And once we had all those images up, it was just arresting and astounding to just look at the youth of the Panthers, to look at the, the beauty, to look at the stance, the, you know, almost the cockiness, the bravado, and even the innocence, you know, like all that you would expect in a teenager or college student or college age student. And we thought, you know, there's, there's something here that's also maybe visceral and subliminal at a time in our country where many people seem to be so frightened of each other. Here is a chance to actually explore the beauty. It's almost artwork. You know, these photographers took such beautiful images in black and white, in film, and when you put them all together, it is almost its own tapestry. I grew up in the 60s, and I remember like a lot of these images being really strong and powerful. They've mm-hmm. come to you know last far longer than the time frame when they were taken. And I was just wondering if they were if there was anything that had particularly stuck with you that you had seen when you were younger, or that you had been exposed to, and that was something that was part of the germ of what made you interested in, in pursuing this. Yes, I would say maybe, and maybe that's through the eyes of a child, just sort of that youthful, hopeful, things are going to be better, um, you know, and, and just the wardrobe. What an electric, <laughs> psychedelic era, you know, just the colors, the palettes, the afros. I certainly had family members who, you know, donned go-go boots and mini dresses and having, you know, cool afros. So it was really great to kind of see these images in a different way. You know, when you're kind of, when people are living through things, you're just living through them. You're just wearing, you know, some clothes and doing your hair. But now it's almost a, it's a statement of an era. It's a statement of an image. It's a statement of a state of mind. And all of that we're trying to celebrate in this documentary, but also include in it to show, you know, at that time, you could say African-Americans were growing Afros, the white community, you know, especially guys were growing their hair really long. You know, it was a time of rebellion in some ways. And talking to some of the 
especially the women, many of them, their parents frowned upon them when they, you know, got rid of their press and curl and their beautiful look and, you know, the that kind of quaffed um, attitude and quaff look for this striking Afro. And it was just, that was their rebellion. So it was great to kind of hear those stories and put those back. Many people forgot about that, and it was a great trip down memory lane. For others, it was maybe a little more painful trip down memory lane. And for yet others, they just had no idea. None of that imagery is as loaded as it was back then, and especially to young people to see it. It kind of gives them a message and insight into, you know, everything just doesn't appear out of thin air. It really does come from from something. So it was really great to sort of add what I guess I'll call maybe a pop culture look to the film as well. You know, a history lesson, certainly, but also, you know, what were the cultural messages? It was such a time in American history where Blacks were, you know, now becoming more in television. Um, you know, music was its own thing. You know, co- outdoor concerts were a big thing. All these sort of things were starting, you know, this is all coming out of the Eisenhower era. So it was new, this new sense of freedom for young people. All colors were experiencing this. Now has become, you know, corporatized, if you will, like outdoor concerts is no big deal. But back then it was a cultural statement. So uh, it was. it's great to kind of remind people of that, reminisce a little bit, and then just also put it all together in, in a hopefully an exciting and engaging two-hour film. Now, there's an expectation that white audiences might not be familiar with some of the Black Panther history, but are you also finding that young African-Americans are also somewhat unfamiliar with some of this history? Yes, we are, actually. I think a lot of people have heard of the name, and it's a maybe a sexy image, and uh, and they know something. Some people, you know, were steeped in it and were around, and so we heard from a lot of people who said they got to learn something new, so that's very encouraging. And, you know, I call it 360-degree storytelling. I want to put voices in from all sides, you know, all walks of life, all spectrums that were in the film, and, you know, we really worked hard to do so. And particularly for high school kids or young kids who literally have the advantage of everything, you know, all kinds of technology, they forget that movements occurred in this country without Twitter and without Facebook posts and Instagram. (laughs) So it was, you know, kind of a a reminder of the hard legwork that it really required to be involved in something. You know, it was a 24-hour commitment. It wasn't Monday, Wednesday, Friday or after work or after church or anything. It was literally, many people had left their families. They were so committed to this. And um, and it was a time where so many people were committed and they wanted to work together. And I think maybe that is something that either has been lost or forgotten or just got lost in the shuffle, that the coalitions that were being built back then were just extraordinary. Fred Hampton, particularly in Chicago, how he was able to build bridges with, of course, the black community, the Latino community, with the young lords, even the white Appalachian community. Uh, I mean, just they were trying to move, work together to kind of find the common ground so they could make everything better. You know, people, so many people were living with slum landlords. It didn't matter your race. Certainly blacks were more affected, but other people as well. So it was really trying to that figure out what can be the common ground so we can all work from that. And I think that's something that maybe young people don't realize or forgot about or just being bombarded with so many images from history, where to put it in the lexicon of importance, you know, that's something we're, we're hearing that that's been a treat. Well, you mentioned Twitter and social media. It's interesting that part of the way they financed the Black Panther movement was through this newspaper where they actually would have to print this newspaper. The paper was the lifeblood of the party. That's how we survived. We sold the papers, 25 cents back then. 
it cost maybe 12 cents to print it. The other 12 and a half cent went to the various chapters and, and, and branches. That's how we basically survived. The party paper went places party members would never get to go to, and reaching people we would never see. But the paper got there some kind of way or other. So it was very important to get the paper out. Los Angeles, 2,850. New Haven, 3,000. When we were loading boxes or bundling papers or whatever we were doing, we did it in an assembly line fashion. And we would just start singing, you know, ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting this paper to you, or whatever we would do. Everybody took a t turns working on it. I mean, they literally had to write the articles, they had to take the photos, they had to actually have a printing press, then they had to print it out, and then they had to figure out how to distribute it and get it to different cities across the country. So it literally was, and then they had to sell it, and they all had kind of a quota that they had to sell each day. They could keep a small percent for themselves. I think they talked about, someone called in the film, their nickel money. They would turn over maybe 25 cents to the party and keep five cents for themselves to live off of. So it was just this extraordinary effort of, yes, like today we just post something, you know, upload the photo that we just took on our phone and post it and boom, it's out there. Whereas back then it literally was the long hours of taking a photo, developing the film, writing the article, printing the paper, publishing it, and then getting it distributed and sold to people. So it was just a different, a different time. You said it took about 10 years to finance it. In that 10-year period, were you and Stanley Nelson still kind of working on it or going through researching it in some way? Or was it you, you needed the money first to be able to proceed in any way, shape, or form? Well, with this project, it seemed like it just worked out better to once the funds were raised to really be in full throttle production. Um, you know, we both worked on different projects. And I didn't know he had, was really working on it sort of quietly trying to raise funds while doing other projects. Because I think with maybe this type of project, it was just a little different where it wasn't like something else where you can kind of do some research and talk to people and get everybody on board. You really needed kind of a full throttle approach because, you know, a lot of people did have suspicions. Other people were trying to make films themselves. Um, there was one filmmaker before he died. He was trying to make a film on the Panthers, so everybody kind of ceded the territory to him. And then once he died, his name is St. Clair Bourne, I think then Stanley just get, got more traction to go back and pursue and see if, you know, the funds could actually be raised. Would, would there be a market for it? Would there be interest in how to go about it? So it was, it was I guess you could say it was a slow build. So 10 years to finance, and then how long did it take to actually gather up all these interviews and archive footage and stills and, and put it into a film? Um, probably the overall process, and Stanley can correct me, it's maybe 10 to 12 years totally from raising the funds and then doing the production. The production ended up taking three to four years. So it was just a really lengthy, lengthy process. And as idealistic filmmakers, we thought, oh, we'll get going. We'll take a year and a half. Once the funds are raised, we thought we'd be finished in about a year and a half later. Well, nearly four years later, <laughs> you know, we're finished. So it was definitely a labor of love, and it was challenging, and challenging to certainly get interest and gain trust, but also just the amount of time needed for the archival research was extraordinary. It literally was a global search. And what some people couldn't find year one, they were able to find year two, you know, that sort of thing, where people who weren't ready to look through parents' archives were ready, you know, a couple of years into it. So it was really kind of a combination of all those things 
that ended up working in our favor. Were you surprised by some of the material you were able to uncover? You know what? Yes. Uh, and one of the things we thought, you know, my joke was, yay, I'm working on a topic that's the late 60s, so there's probably going to be tons of, of footage. <laughs> it's it's going to be a piece of cake. Some sense it was, um, but another sense uh, we still wanted to find something hopefully surprising and new and fresh that maybe people hadn't seen before. And what we were able to do was uncover a lot of uh, photographs from private collections. You know, there was even a gentleman from Japan who happened to take photographs from Chicago. He took his photos, lived in Chicago maybe six to eight months, and then you know went back to Japan. And I think um, part of my staff located him on Facebook. So it was just this huge effort. You know, there are people from Canada, um, people you know, both coasts, the South, the North, the Midwest. We really did call anybody and everybody to see what we could, what we could uncover. It's interesting, too, that uh, Stanley Nelson did include interviews with some of the white police officers. Was that difficult to track down those people and to get them to talk on camera? Yes, I think certainly that was probably an advantage of time on our side. I initially reached out to them, and I think it probably took close to two years into the process before we were able to film the interviews. Tracking them down was not as lengthy, but it was amount of a lot of talking and phoning and trying to gain people's trust and let them know that they're going to be heard. You know, we're not trying to do one quick little comment. You know, we are trying to make an actual film. So that was... Um, you know, part of the, what I like to call that 360-degree storytelling. It, it, you know, it makes the film that much richer. We don't want to just simply preach to the choir. We actually want to get some unusual um, voices because they're, they're valid as well. What did they think at the time? You know, it was a scary time for a lo- everybody, for a lot of people. No one knew what was quite going to happen. But in that fright for some people was opportunity. People wanted to just change things and take that sort of fear, apprehension, and just go for it. And that usually comes from the young people, you know, usually teenagers and college students. Those are the ones who just go out, you know, fearless, full throttle. They were ready to do so. So, yes, that did take some time to get their voices included, and I just think the film is much better for it. And let me ask you one kind of controversy that came up regarding the documentary. In the film, Elaine Brown is interviewed, and she has since come out criticizing the film. How have you and Stanley Nelson responded to some of her criticism? You know, she, like everybody else, is entitled to her comments and her feedback. Uh, I'm certainly thrilled that to have met her and worked with her and included her in the film, but that is certainly her personal opinion, and everybody's entitled to their own personal opinion. And for the Black Panther documentary, what do you think is kind of the mystique about the Black Panthers that still makes it something that draws, because it, it played here in San Diego at a, a small cinema, and it was selling out screenings. Um, do you think there is some sort of, like, mystique or mythology to it that still has a, a power for audiences? Absolutely. And Europeans at the time flew here to the United States to film them. I mean, what they accomplished at that time, just no one had seen anything like that. You know, they had it all down to the message and the look, I mean, they, it was, if you, I guess in today's terms, it was perfect branding and marketing. You know, they knew, they figured out how to get the look and outfit, you know, all the way down to the boots and the beret and a leather jacket and a gun. And that image, you know, has sort of stayed with them. You know, yes, it's led to, you could say, misperceptions, but that was, that's sort of your gateway to them. And it just has 
grown, grown and grown. And 50 years later, there is just this powerful mystique about them, especially if you were a teenager, then like the director was. I mean, who didn't want to look cool? I mean, some people didn't, you know, you wanted to look like that, not your minister, say, you know, who's wearing the skinny tie and the suit. Would you want to wear that? Or do you want to wear like the leather jacket and a beret? You know, how hip is that? So I think they really figured out branding and when people sort of gravitated to that image and the media gravitated to that image, well, then they opened their mouth and they used that platform uh, to share what was going on in the black community. The film will be screening here in San Diego as part of the Human Rights Film Festival. What's the importance for you as a filmmaker to have a film included in something like that? Uh, is it? Do you worry that it's preaching to the choir, kind of, or do you feel it's a, a good way to highlight the importance of what the film's about? I think it's all part of that. I think it's all great. I mean, the fact that these film festivals exist and that there are what you would call human rights film festivals, I mean, it's just so important. And I think packaging it as such, you know, hopefully can tell, certainly you could say the choir, but also the larger public, that there is enough out there where human rights is still a question uh, around the world. There's a lot going on. You know, we're very fortunate in the United States where it's you know, not, uh, you know, a country completely under siege. So it's great to have some place to film and show, showcase our films, have discussions and dialogue around these different topics. Yes, the 1960s is, is different from 2016, but in some ways, because in some ways you can argue we're almost even we're more together and more polarized, you know, equally at the same time. So it's great that that's being embraced under the umbrella of a human rights film festival uh, to show that in some communities, human rights is really under threat. And we that affects us all. And we should all be concerned and want to know what is going on there so things can get better and that can stop. So I'm very excited to be included in the San Diego Human Rights Film Festival. It's exciting as filmmakers to meet a different audience and to speak with people in person. The film is playing here in San Diego just on the heels of the Oscar nominations, which there's been a lot of outcry about the fact that there's a distinct lack of diversity in a lot of the nominations. How do you feel about that as a filmmaker? I mean, what would you like to see changed or how do you think is the best approach to tackle this. I know there's been calls for boycotts of the Oscars. I think the founder of BET suggested not boycotts, but like making changes within the studio system. What do you see from a filmmaker's point of view as something you'd like to see to try and address this? The fact that it's being discussed is really exciting and discussed exactly in the moment. You know, we're not talking about this 10 years later, but actually you know, as soon as the nominations came out. I think that's very exciting and encouraging, as well as certainly as an African-American filmmaker myself, very disappointing. Uh, I was just watching Spike Lee on uh, one of the morning shows, and I did read about Bob Johnson's comments. And then I also read some Academy members were speaking to, I think, The Hollywood Reporter or one of the, or Variety, one of the trades, kind of very defensive, you know, saying, don't blame us. So, you know, it's really the industry's problem. So I think all of those are should be in the mix. I mean, it is 2016. It was an extraordinary year of films. And part of those extraordinary films were films by African-American filmmakers and African-American talent. That should all be spotlighted and praised. But, yes, it does come down to access and opportunity. You know, we all want access and opportunity, and we all want to tell our stories that reach different audiences differently. The fact that it's being called out 
it's being discussed. I think it is probably great that Chris Rock, of all people, is going to be hosting it because he could probably navigate, <laughs> you know, these stormy waters probably better than anybody. I'm not a host, so I certainly couldn't do it. You know, look, I'll just look at the glass half full in the sense of it's finally going to call everybody out and we're going to continue to discuss it. Hopefully more projects are going to be worthwhile. You know, on that note, I believe, you know, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity is, you know, involved in some sort of litigation or, or lawsuit, you know, exploring the lack of women um, at the helm in so many films in the industry. Uh, New York Magazine published a photo of like a 100 working, you know, women directors who could be hired and so many have done such amazing work and their, you know, the representation of the top 100 and 200 films each year is still paltry. Good Morning America said the majority, like 94% of the Academy voters are white, 77% are male. You know, those are their figures. I'm not a member, so I, I don't know. But something does need to change, and I think it's to change for the better. You know, we are here. There's so much talent coming from so many different walks of life, and audiences are interested. People want to see really good, fascinating stories told by a variety of people. Of course, the Hollywood Star Wars, sure, they're Hollywood Star Wars. But, you know, something else by an independent filmmaker is just as valid and is just as important. So hopefully the needle will get moved, and hopefully it will get moved faster. Hopefully it won't be another 10 or 20 years before the complexion of the Oscar and the voting piece of the Oscars is changed. Hopefully we'll get some changes in the boardrooms, you know, in the Hollywood studios. So only so few people are diverse who can greenlight projects. I mean, you know, the funding is the thing. So it's it's a very complicated discussion, but it's a complicated discussion that's valid and worth having. I, I really feel like once you get more diversity in the executive offices, the places where those projects are greenlit, that's when more change will be seen on screen. And then we'll have a bigger pool of films to choose from and then more diversity. You know, it it seems like it's... Yes. And they do, you know, and there's always the remark of, uh, oh, we can't either find the talent or conversely, they don't make money or they don't make money overseas. Well, time and time again, that's just disproven. You know, I think what was it, Kate Blanchett, you know, when she won her Oscar for Blue Jasmine, you know, saying, you know, the, hello, people, the earth is round. You know, people want to see women filmmakers, women characters, and people go to the theaters and pay money to see good film. That's just the bottom line, you know, whether it's streaming, in the theater, on television, on cable. It's a really rich time for amazing storytelling, and it's just time for people to become a little less afraid and and spotlight those films as well. They're just as valid, those stories. Maybe they're different than what you're used to seeing or you're not understanding it, but that doesn't mean it's not just as valid. You know, there's a whole new generation of people who are growing up in a very different landscape. Storytelling speaks differently to them. And I think there's enough product out there and certainly enough talent out there to have a much more representation because we just all, as a filmmaker myself, we all just want to tell good stories. I think my biggest disappointment was that Ryan Coogler didn't get a directing nomination for Creed. I thought that was the perfect film for blending kind of independent filmmaking and big franchise and kind of crossing over African-American story with one that had been more centered on white characters. And it just seemed like, oh, and it did well at the box office. I was going like, oh, this is the film that will... You know, like bring everything together. 
I was really disappointed that he didn't get nominated. <laughs> well, in the end, the work will stand out. That is the huge takeaway. And he's moving on to direct, you know, a gigantic, I think, Marvel Comics film, Black mm-hmm. Panther, interestingly. <laughs> so <laughs> it so it's in some ways, it's like I said, I'm going to look at it as the glass half full. I'll take that posture right now. The work that film will stand up, the films that were released will stand out. People will... Um, you know, look at this great work that's coming out. And as long as they keep working, you know, that's really the key, the access and the opportunity. It's really hard to even get that far if you don't even have access or opportunity. And that's really where it starts. And that's where the big change, uh, you know, should happen. You know, more people given access, more people given opportunity, more decisions being made um, that sort of opens up the traditional pathways. And also, we just need to keep coming. You know, we just need to not stop, you know, just pick ourselves up. Yeah, bummer, we didn't get that nomination or award. But you know what? It's an amazing piece of work. And, you know, that will live on. And soon the accolades will come. Sure, it, you know, be great to have it at the time, but that doesn't always happen at the time. So but it certainly means we just keep going. And do you have another project lined up or uh, anything coming? Thank you. Yes. I'm actually now wrapping up some short documentaries on the criminal justice landscape, uh, one looking at the problem of race and bail, sort of at the initial stage of the criminal justice piece. And I'm also working on adapting the documentary Freedom Riders that I produced into a limited narrative series. So I've got a couple of producing partners and we're trying to shop that around and, and make some headway there. I think that's a nice riveting story that could work well in a limited series format. You know, to me, it just speaks so perfectly to today's times of, you know, people from all backgrounds and races and religious points of view uh, working together to make change for the better. So trying to uh, keep stories alive and happening. <laughs> all right. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And please support the San Diego Human Rights Watch Film Festival. Uh, Turn out, support your film festivals. I know it's a lot of work to put those together. So shout out to them and all their planners and volunteers. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. The Human Rights Watch Film Festival runs through Sunday at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. In addition to the Saturday screening of The Black Panthers, will be a stop-motion documentary about cows, Israel, and Palestine called The Wanted 18. It's an unconventional and highly effective documentary that I urge you to seek out on Sunday. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And since the podcast is still young, we'd love for you to leave us a review and tell your friends to take a listen. Thanks again for listening. Until our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. PBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation.
presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.